Welcome back to our study of the book of First Kings. We are in First Kings chapter 8, and we'll be looking this time at verses 31 to 53. We've said before this is a rich and long chapter, and so we've been taking our time a little bit going through it. Uh, today it's still probably going to feel like we're going through pretty fast, uh, but this is still a long section and uh, one where I want us to see the sort of the big picture of what's going on. So Solomon has completed the temple. They've brought the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. God's presence has filled the temple. The cloud of his glory filled the temple. And now Solomon is uh, dedicating the temple. Remember, many of the Israelites have traveled to Jerusalem at this time to celebrate the Feast of Booths, commemorating the time when they were in the wilderness, dwelling in tents after the Exodus. And so uh, many people are, are there in Jerusalem celebrating. They're there for this uh, moment of dedication of the temple. And we saw last time that Solomon acknowledges that even though the temple is built as a dwelling place for the Lord, that doesn't mean that Solomon or anybody else thinks that God is confined to the temple or that the temple can in any way contain him. In fact, Solomon says uh, in verse 27, he says, uh, Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. So he acknowledges that God is not contained in the temple, and yet there is a sense in which God himself planned for the tabernacle and now the tabernacle being replaced by the temple to be his dwelling place in the midst of the of his people a place in which his people are aware of his presence in their midst and it was of course central also for their worship and as we're about to see it was central to their prayers so um, the last thing we saw that solomon said in verse 31 was um, that Solomon said, uh, listen in heaven when your people pray toward the temple. Listen in heaven your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive. So you dwell in heaven and this is your uh, the place where you have your eyes set um, on the earth and your eyes are toward this temple. And so Solomon's saying, Lord, when, when we pray toward this temple, my request is that you would hear us and that you would forgive us. And then what he proceeds to do in our passage, in this lengthy prayer that Solomon prays, probably one of the longest prayers anywhere in the Bible, in this lengthy prayer that Solomon prays, he gives seven scenarios where someone might pray toward the temple for a specific reason, and then he asks God to hear that prayer and then to respond to that prayer. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at the seven scenarios and then at Solomon's chief request for all of those scenarios and then his specific requests for those scenarios. So um, if you're looking at your Bible and you're looking at 1 Kings 8.31, you'll see there are several short paragraphs, and most of them are about two um, verses long, several short paragraphs. What we're gonna do is look at the first part of each of those paragraphs and then come back and look at the second part of each of those paragraphs. So in a sense, we're gonna go through this two times, but we're gonna look at the first half of each paragraph first and then the second half uh, the second time through. So what are these seven scenarios that Solomon 
brings up in his prayer asking the Lord to respond to? Well, the first one is if a man sins against his neighbor and has to take an oath in God's presence in the, at the temple. Verse 31 says, If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house. Now, we don't get a lot of specifics about what is going on here. And because we were not involved in the uh, worship and uh, tabernacle and temple life of Israel, that might sound strange to us. You can go to Exodus 22, uh, verses 10 to 12, and read what may be the background for this. Uh, the scenario there is if someone um, has um, you know, borrowed uh, an animal like a donkey or something from one of his um, from one of his neighbors, and something happens, and uh, the neighbor, you know, maybe thinks that uh, the guy he lent it to killed it or was negligent or stole it or whatever. Um, then, um, well, let me just read it to you. All right, Exodus 22 uh, verses 10 to 12 says, "If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. So there, the idea is, if somebody comes to the temple and swears that it's not their fault that something happened to the animal that they were supposed to be protecting for somebody else, then they're supposed to accept that oath. Um, and so maybe the, that's the background here. If a man sins against his neighbor, verse thirty-one says, is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before the altar in this house. So. That's scenario number one. All right, now, scenario number two. What if Israel is defeated by an enemy in battle because of their sin? Verse 33. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house. So the second reason somebody might pray toward the temple uh, or in the temple is that uh, the nation of Israel has gone into battle against one of their enemies and they have been defeated because they have sinned. Well, then what if they turn back to the Lord and they confess their sin? That's the second scenario that Solomon is addressing. Hear that prayer um, if, if they pray in that scenario. The third scenario is in verse 35. When, and this is, uh, what if there's a, a drought? Right? Verse 35, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they, Israel, have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them. So if, if the sky has been shut, right, like it like happened in the days of Elijah, uh, God is not bringing rain on the people anymore, um, and they recognize that's because they've sinned against the Lord and they turn back to him and they pray toward the temple. That's the third reason why someone might pray, right? Um, fourth reason is that there's famine or disease or locusts. Uh, verse 37, if there's famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locusts or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, 
Right? So if anything like that happens, any kind of disaster, natural disaster, we might would call it today, or um, you know, uh, an enemy comes and sets up a siege against them, and they turn toward they turn toward the temple, they turn toward the Lord and pray. Right? That's number four. Number five. What if a Gentile comes to Israel to pray? Right? Verse forty-one. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel comes from a far country for your namesake. For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm when he comes and prays toward this house. What's going to happen then? So Solomon is asking the Lord to respond when even a, a foreigner, a Gentile, comes to the temple. They've heard about the Lord. His name, his fame is spread around the world and they come to Jerusalem to his temple to pray. Think about the Queen of Sheba who hears about Solomon's wisdom. Think about the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts who had come to Jerusalem and had uh, gotten the scroll of Isaiah and whom uh, Philip talks to and, and told about Jesus. That, that's the kind of scenario that Solomon's envisioning here. All right, number six. What if Israel goes to battle? Verse 44. If your people go out to battle against their enemy, by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord toward the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name. So it, whenever Israel is going out to battle, right, it's anticipated that they're going to pray and they're going to turn toward this temple as the place uh, where God's name has been put, God's you know, chosen place of worship, the place that the people are supposed to pray toward. They go out to battle, naturally they're going to pray. Um, and then last one, number seven. What about when Israel sins and is sent into exile? Verse 46. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near, yet if they turn their heart uh, in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name. So this is a scenario we know played out, right? That the people of Israel were sent into exile because of their sin. And he's saying, if they're in exile and they truly repent. They really turn back to you. They turn from their sins. That uh, was the reason why you sent them into exile. If they turn back to you and pray, right? that's scenario number seven. Now, before we move on to what Solomon asks God to do in response to all those scenarios, let's um, notice a couple of things. One, all these scenarios indicate some kind of need. In some cases, it's a need for forgiveness because they've sinned. In some cases, it's just a need for help, like uh, an army going into battle. Um, in some cases, it's a need for intervention, like the man who swears an oath about you know, how he's handled a neighbor's property. Um, in all these scenarios, all these prayers are brought to God as an expression of need. They need God to do something uh, for them. The second thing, uh, and that's a big part of our, of our prayers as well, right? We, it's not the only reason we pray. We also pray to give thanks. We also pray to praise the Lord. But a significant part of why we pray all the time is because we are a needy people. We sin and we need forgiveness. 
we lack wisdom, we need help, uh, we're in trouble, and we recognize we can't get ourselves out of it, we're in a, a, a difficult situation, and we know we need the Lord's help. We're not God, we're not all-powerful, we're not all-knowing, we're needy people, right? And so uh, that's what prayer expresses in large part, right, is our need, our humility before the Lord. We're confessing to God that we are not Him, we are not God, and we need His help as His creatures, as His people. The second thing is that Solomon's prayer shows that he has been a student of the Scriptures, and particularly the Old Testament law. Uh, if you have a Bible that gives you cross-references, um, and you look at those occasionally, if you look at the cross-references uh, for these verses we just looked at, you, you'll see several references to uh, Deuteronomy 28, to various verses in Deuteronomy 28. The reason for that is, in Deuteronomy 28, Moses spells out for the people of Israel what will happen to them if they do not keep God's covenant. If they do not do what God says, if they fail to worship Him and Him alone, if they turn to idols, if they break their covenant with God, He uh, threatens them with all kinds of curses, all kinds of bad things that will happen as a consequence of their sin against the Lord. And many of these scenarios that Solomon is painting come straight out of Deuteronomy 28. He's saying, essentially, if the people sin against you and one of the curses that you threatened in the law comes to pass and they recognize that and they turn back to you, then I want you to, to hear their prayer. So, for example, when he talks about what if uh, somebody pr the nation prays because they were defeated by an enemy because of their sin. Well, in Deuteronomy 28.25, it says, The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. If you sin against him, right? You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. When he says, what if they pray because there's no rain? That comes from Deuteronomy 28, 23, and 24. If Israel sins against the Lord, then it says, the heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. Right, when he says, what about if there's famine, disease, locusts, etc.? Deuteronomy 28, 21, and 22 says, The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat, and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish." So again, those are, those are things that will come upon the nation of Israel if they sin against the Lord. Uh, the last one, what if Israel sin into exile because of their sin? That comes out of Deuteronomy 28, uh, verse 36, and then verse 64. Verse 36 says, The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. And then verse 64 says, And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. So this prayer 
shows that Solomon is doing what a king is supposed to do. He's meditating on the scripture. He's paying attention to the law so that he can, and this is what David charged Solomon to do in his parting words to David, right? To be a man who walks according to God's ways. And the only way you can do that is if you know what God says. And so Solomon's prayer is full of scripture, even though there's no quotations The background to any Israelite who knows the law is clearly the curses that God threatened Israel with if they disobeyed the law. Now, what is is Solomon asking God to do? His chief request of God in all of these scenarios is, Lord, hear their prayer from heaven. Right? Verse 32 then hear in heaven and act and judge. Verse 34, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people. Verse 36, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants. Right? Then um, verse 39, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act. Verse 43, hear in heaven your dwelling place. Right? Verse 45, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea. Right? Verse uh, 49, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause. So Solomon's chief prayer is, God, hear our prayers. Listen, when it's, whether it's uh, the nation, whether it's an individual, whether it's a Gentile, whoever makes his prayer toward this place where you have put your name, God, hear their prayer from heaven, your dwelling place. You are in the heavens. We are down here on the earth. You're not obligated to listen to us, but we know you are God merciful and gracious. So I ask that whenever anyone prays toward this temple, that you would hear and respond to their prayer. That's his chief request. Right now, he gets specific though about how he asks God to respond to these different uh, scenarios. So if we go back to verse 32, when this man has come to the temple to swear an oath related to some dispute, apparently, right? Verse 32 says, hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. So if this man comes into the temple and swears that he hasn't done this thing that he's been accused of, perhaps, then if he's lying in that oath, bring that on his head. If he is telling the truth, in his oath, then let him be vindicated, right? Hear that prayer. Uh, In the second scenario, he says, uh, verse 34, hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. So if they're defeated in battle because they've sinned and they turn to you in prayer, then forgive their sin. Remove their sin from them. Um, verse 33 says essentially, or excuse me, number 3 says essentially the same thing in verse 36, the third scenario. If uh, there's no rain because of Israel's sin, verse 36 says, Hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. So don't continue to hold that sin against them. If they turn back to you, if they pray to you, forgive their sin. And take away the drought, send them rain, bless the land that you have given to Israel as an inheritance. All right, then in scenario number four, what if there's a, a famine in the land or some kind of pestilence or something like that? Verse 39 says, Here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive, there's forgiveness again, and act and render to each whose heart you know 
according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our Father. So hear their prayer and respond according to what you alone know is in their heart. You know whether or not they're sincere. You know whether or not they're really turning back to you. Respond to them according to um, you know what's what's in their heart, according to um, that man's uh, or woman's ways, right? So hear, forgive, act, respond to that prayer. Um, number five, scenario number five. What if a Gentile comes to the temple to pray? Verse 43, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. So answer whatever they ask you for in prayer. In order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. In other words, if a Gentile comes here and prays God, answer that prayer so that they'll go back home and tell people the God of Israel, he's the real God, the temple in Israel. That's really the place where he has turned his eyes and his ears and his heart. He listens to the prayers that are offered toward that place. He is the true and living God. So answer the prayers of the foreigners, he says. Uh, scenario number six, uh, what if your people are going out to battle? Verse 45, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. If they pray to you seeking your help, your power, whenever they go out to fight an enemy, maintain their cause. Give them victory in the fight. And in the last scenario, if they're in exile and they repent from their sin, they turn back to you. He says, verse 49, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive that they may have compassion on them for they are your people and your heritage which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel giving ear to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses, your servant, when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. So these are your people. Hear their prayers. Hear my prayer, Solomon says. And if they sin and are sent into exile and they turn back to you, hear their prayer and cause their captors to have compassion on them. Right? And this is what we see happening right when uh, Judah is taken into exile in 586 BC they've sinned against the Lord uh, the Babylonians come and take them into exile and destroy the temple they're carried off into captivity and then um, the Medo-Persians defeat the Babylonians and Cyrus is raised up as the new king and what happens the Lord stirs his heart to send the people of Judah who are willing who want to to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. He has compassion on them. So um, this, is, this is not just looking back toward what God warned Israel about in the law. It also looks ahead to real things that will happen uh, to Israel and how God will respond. This is, I mean, in a real sense, this is a, a key passage for understanding how God relates to his people Israel, where the temple fits into Israel's 
life, not only their you know sacrifices, but also their prayers and how they respond to the different scenarios that they face. And in particular, what happens when they sin? Did you notice that in verse 46, Solomon said, if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. All of us need to turn to the Lord to confess our sin, to seek forgiveness of sin. And the Bible promises in 1 John that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if we, we don't have to turn to the temple now. Remember, the temple has been fulfilled by Jesus. And so we turn to the Father in the name of the Son, by the power of the Spirit. We confess our sin. We put our trust in Him. We turn back to Him. And just as Solomon prayed, we know that God will hear in heaven and He will respond to our prayer, and He will act, and He will forgive, and He will bless, and He will restore, and He will give wisdom, and He will give help. Because as um, Hagar learned all the way back in Genesis, the one true God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, He is a God who hears. Praise God for that. Amen.